All right, talking wine business. Here we go. A three, a two, and a one. Action. <sighs> Greetings, everybody. Welcome to a, another episode of the Wind Up Podcast. I am your host, Mike Anderson of MTGA Wines, and we are going to dive into some more of the nitty-gritty stuff that really makes up a wine business and the wine industry today. At the end of March in our Q&A, we had a very lovely and poignant question that was, how do you actually make money in the wine industry? And I touched on it simply, you know, the basics of any business. It's kind of a margin game. You know, what does it cost you to supply a good or a service? How much money are you charging for it? And how much money are you actually making on top of it? Are you going for volume? Are you doing more things with less margin, but making a decent chunk of change because you're just rattling out uh, the volume? Or are you a little bit more boutique? Are you a little bit more craft or whatever kind of catchy adjective you want to use and doing less, but making a little bit more to make the business make sense. And in touching on that, you know, those are kind of like the two, I guess, main avenues that we'll talk about. There are definitely kind of hybrids of each and different things that you have to take into consideration if you're doing one versus the other. But I think there's a lot more to it than obviously just making a product, knowing what it costs and trying to figure out what to do next. So with that, we're gonna dive into more of the business and the behind the scenes of the wine industry and really what it takes and what the considerations are when you're trying to grow a small wine business. Uh, a lot of this is gonna come from personal experience. As I started MTJ, it's gonna be experiences that I had while I was working with and for other small and even larger companies within Napa and Sonoma. And hopefully it provides a little bit of insight into kind of what our experience is, what the challenges are, also what some of the perks are of working within the world of wine, specifically when it comes to winemaking and sales. Now, before we get too far into this, I do want to preface this much like I did the question in the Q&A is that I'm not a business expert. I don't consider myself one, even though I am self-employed and I am somehow allowed to adult and make a living in this way. Uh, I, I am still learning and I, I don't have an MBA. I didn't go to business school. I didn't even go to school to make wine. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm simply kind of making up as I go. And I know there are probably like key like business tenants and terms and things that I'm aware of, but I'm probably gonna use in the wrong way. I'm probably gonna explain this and there's gonna be someone out there who is far far more talented and smarter than I am, who's gonna be like, this guy like has the concepts in a you know relatively you know in line, but there's definitely things that need to be like moved here, 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 and around to actually make this show make sense. But I don't know, I feel like telling the story of how we started and and you know real personal experiences within this realm of business uh, from firsthand knowledge and learning as you go is important uh, and also kind of absorbing information from some of those larger entities that I worked for uh, through the years so uh, feel free to quote me on some of this but don't quote me on all of it because I'm sure there are things I'm going to get wrong uh, but I'm really going to try and draw this from personal experience. Now, this is the cliche that we mentioned in that other show, and that is 
to make a fortune in the wine industry, you start with a larger one. You know, almost 15 years ago, actually 15 years ago, when I started working in the wine industry again, this was the summer of 2000, spring, summer of 2008. The joke was you make a million dollars in the wine industry when you start with 10. Now today, it's more like you make a million dollars when you start with 100, but you know, times have changed, let's say. And from the outside perspective, it's like, how do you not just, how do you do this if you're not rich and famous already? You know, how do you bankroll it? How do you make it work realistically? And, and it's, I'm not going to lie, it's tough. It's very expensive. Uh, like many businesses, it's very cash flow reliant. I mean, especially in certain points of the year. I mean, we probably have for us like two thirds of our annual budget go out between September and October. And, you know, two months out of the year, it's just boom, here are all your bills all at once. And, and it's something that you have to figure out how to make that work, how to budget for it. Um, how are you releasing your wines to make sure that you have money in the bank when those bills come due? You know, when land, when the price of land is so expensive, how do you start making wine? You know, when you can't just buy a winery outright, when there's no more, there's not a lot of room for land to be developed into a winery anymore in this area. You know, where do you make your wine? How do you do all this stuff? And I was very lucky in that, you know, my family being in the wine industry, that I had a place to go to make my wine when I started. I for sure had a leg up compared to many others. You know, I still paid rent to the family. I still tried to maintain the equipment. I still, you know, paid my bills. I still tried to do everything and have done everything on my own and bankrolled it myself since day one. But that didn't come without a lot of trials and tribulations and losing a lot of money in the early days because I simply didn't know what I was doing. So I'm going to try and start from that point in, at square one. You don't have millions or billions of dollars in the bank, so you but you want to get into wine. How do you make that happen? And kind of what are the considerations therein? And how does that go from, in essence, a small, tiny little boutique startup to something that's actually sustainable and can provide a paycheck for you? So put food on the table and put a roof over your head. So let's start there. Now, when I started MTGA, I knew full well that fresh out of college with very little money in the bank, um, I was back living at home uh, with my parents because I couldn't afford to get an apartment. Um, I finally was able to because I found a place in what was uh, low income, what we call Section 8 housing in California. Uh, and with the very, very tight budget that I was on, I had to, if I wanted to make wine, I needed to find a way to do it on a dime, quite literally on a dime. And that was something like, okay, let's make Merlot. And in fact, for those that know the story, I actually was trying to make Petite Syrah originally. That contract fell through. I ended up in this Merlot vineyard and I knew full well, I can actually afford to make this wine because I'm not going to have to buy a lot of new barrels. I'm only making two barrels anyway. Uh, the original uh, owners of that vineyard were like, hey, if the wine's just good, you know, kick us back X amount of cases. And if we want to, you know, create more of a contract and you to purchase the fruit, we'll figure that out next year. And that's what happened. Um, I was able to, in essence, I fell in into this vineyard that this fruit was going to rot on the vine no matter what. It was going to be a home winemaking project. 
And the owners looked at it like that and they said, hey, just kick us back some cases and we'll figure out the details of payment and things like that later. It fit my budget <laughs> for sure. And from there, you know, you make the wine, you, you do the fermentation process, you do the aging process. And through that point, it was my time to kind of figure out where is this wine project going? Am I going to actually sell it or am I just going to try and make something for friends and family? And many of you have heard this part of the story before, but when I started getting some pretty good feedback on my wines from that first year, it was like, okay, well, what's it going to take to start a wine business? So we looked into the licensing and the permitting and, and all the other kind of just details that it takes to start an alcohol business within the state of California, but also what you have to report to the federal government when it comes to, you know, alcohol and business and, and everything else. I had no idea what I was doing, but, you know, you go online, you try and download all the forms, you contact the agency, you submit all the paperwork, you pay a bunch of uh, licensing fees and you do and you and you go and you run with it. Uh, now, you know, that wine is ready for bottling. And you're going to bottle it up. You're spending money on, you know, the glass, the corks, the foils, the labels, um, any design work that went into any of those things. Uh, you're paying for the bottling run. And now you have wine to sell. And that's the wine business, baby. Show over. We're done. No, this, <laughs> that's how you do it. Um, because this is, this, is, this is the point where most wine businesses really come to a head is that you've made wine, it has Napa on the label, and there's an assumption that, oh, it's Napa wine, it'll sell. And the answer to that is it will if you work on it. The sales portion of the wine industry, I think, is arguably the hardest part. You know, making wine is a lot of, lot of work. It is a lot of work. And it is very difficult to make great wine arguably as difficult, potentially more difficult is to sell that wine and actually make that business go. And that is where the wine industry gets really, really tough. I cannot tell you the number of small labels um, from growers around the valley, uh, friends, uh, just colleagues and people that I've known over the years who have said, yes, we're going to try and make wine. And Three years go by, four years go by, and they're just stocking up, in, like the inventory is just going up and up and up, and the depletions are going nowhere. They're hardly selling anything. They're just, money is flying out the door. And I've had this conversation with so many of them, and, I'd say, and it's a very simple question. Well, what are you doing to sell your wine? Do you have a tasting room? Are you working with distribution? Are you... Did you start a wine club, an allocation list? You know, where, where is your wine going? And the amount of those people that don't have an answer to that question will astound you. It's crazy how many people get into the wine industry with little to no idea how they're going to make it work. And it really helped rationalize my own drive to get into the wine industry at a certain point because I was like, you know what? I was there. You know, back in 2013, 14, 15, when I was releasing the first few vintages of MTGA, I had no clue what I was doing. And I was losing money hand over fist. I was dumping every disposable dollar I had into making wine, and I was getting nothing out of it. To the point where, and Brittany, my HBIC and better half, will tell you this, 
to the point where I thought of quitting almost every other day, it felt like. And she was the one who's like, just keep hustling, keep it going, it'll get there. Keep hustling, keep it going, it'll get there. And keep working on it, keep working on it. You know, I talked to friends, I talked to colleagues, I, I worked with distribution, I worked with a wine club, I worked in, in, in building a tasting program. I, I did all of these things uh, for other people. And I needed to take that knowledge and start to adapt it and make some of that business sense apply to what I was doing with MTGA. So that was like the A number one thing and the biggest learning experience that I think many wineries can still benefit from today is get yourself a business plan in writing and understand the ebbs and flows of trends within the industry and within sales in this industry. So that's like the big thing that I think most people just simply neglect is a proper business plan and understanding what it is really going to take to move the needle when it comes to selling that wine that they have made. All right. So broad overview there of like, here's how these businesses get going. Now, once you have that wine made, and we talked about kind of those two different channels of more like the volume production and kicking out, you know, lots and lots of wine or maybe the smaller production side of things. Now, on the volume side of things, it is typically, I, I call this is probably the wrong, again, the wrong verbiage to use, but I just call it the margin game, which it's all kind of a margin game. But realistically, it's if I make 10,000 bottles, but I'm making $2 per bottle, great. Or if I'm making $5 per bottle, great. That works. And, and you're just saying, hey, I'm going to make these wines, we're making x volume we need to make sure that our that we're getting x number of dollars or x percentage in margin back and that means that we're going to be able to float this thing and on it's no different really on the small production side of things i mean you have to figure out okay you know if i'm only making a couple hundred cases what did this all cost to make and what do i need to charge to make this make, make sense and this was my first giant mistake when i started selling wine for myself was i thought i had my cost of goods and my cost of doing business pretty well wrapped up because I, I love a good spreadsheet. And I'm like, okay, well, let's uh, let's make sure we keep track of all this. I know what I spent on grapes. I know what I'm spending on corks. I know what I'm spending on glass. I know what my rent is. I know what all these things are to make this wine. And what I didn't take into account were things like samples. Okay, like you got to, you know, let people taste wine to see if they want to buy it, whether that's out on the road working with distributors or hosting a tasting, uh, you gotta you know sacrifice some product to get it out there and out and about. Uh, two, I didn't take into account my time. Uh, that's something that I think many, many folks forget to do is they don't take into account what your time is worth and realistically, you know, how much you should be, you know, compensated uh, for that. Uh, I didn't even take into account the licensing or permitting, to be honest, or the taxes. I didn't take into account the excise taxes that we have to pay on alcohol, which is a, a cost. We have to write a check to the government based on how much uh, the percentage of alcohol and the volume of you know that beverage we're making. So it was a lot of little stuff and some bigger stuff that I simply wasn't keeping track of. So when I released my first wine, my 2010 Merlot, this would have been in late 2012 into 2013 when we released this first vintage. So we're talking a cool 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago. And I said, okay, you know, I kind of have a ballpark of what this cost me to make it. At least I thought I did. 
and I said, I think I can think I can sell this wine for $42 a bottle. And if I can sell it for $42 a bottle, I think, you know, that'll, that'll make sense. That'll make sense. And here's where I screwed up again, is that I had that $42 a bottle number in my head, but I didn't account for the fact that I was going to be selling that wine to retail shops and restaurants and to distributors at an FOB or a wholesale price, which is much lower than that retail price. The retail price is 42. You know, that's what you would theoretically see it on like my wine list or on a store shelf, you know, for and this, you know, 10 years ago, that's what, you know, I expected. But I'm selling it at a deep discount to distributors. You know, at that time, you know, it was, I, I did, it was very simple and I probably screwed this up, but it was just half off. It's like this, this FOB price, which stands for freight on board for those that don't know, is now $21 a bottle. And I think the, the wholesale price basically was like, you know, 67% of the retail price, you know, whatever that is of 42. And it was kind of like, and I got probably not the best advice from a few people in setting that pricing. And I think that did set me back, you know, looking back at it now, you know, 2020 hindsight. But because most of the wine was being sold through a distributor to get to retail shops and restaurants for the first few years, we were selling our wine at $21 a bottle to them, which outside of the very, the very first year was actually okay because, you know, I had a good deal with the grower to take those grapes and kick them back some wine and call it even. But when I added on the cost of those grapes, started adding on the cost of buying new barrels and adding on all this other stuff, all of a sudden selling my wine at half off at $21 a bottle to a distributor so they could get it out into the marketplace meant I was losing money. No joke. And it wasn't a lot, but it was a few dollars per bottle that I was losing. And for probably up until 2015, and by 2015, this was my first big like aha. I was like, damn it, why is why am I spinning my wheels? Why do I keep just throwing money in this money pit? So, and luckily, uh, my mother, who's an accountant, uh, she had set me up. I just got a QuickBooks, you know, the software download, installed that, and I started, you know, entering all of uh, the you know chart of accounts for all of our expenses, and was really lining it up with. Um, what, you, what you need to fill out on your tax forms at the end of the year. I'm like, all right, if I get all these set up, I can just run a report and plug all these things in and, you know, we'll make my taxes a little bit easier. Because at that point, I was still doing my own taxes, which I still actually kind of love doing, but whatever. Um, and as I started to fill all that chart of accounts out, I was noticing that on the spreadsheet I had going for like the cost of making my wines, like just the cost of goods versus the cost of doing business and everything else that was outside of the grapes, the corks, the labels, the barrels, the, you know, foils and all that stuff. All of a sudden my expenses were like, oh, there's a lot more here that I simply wasn't taking into account. And at the volume I'm at, and at that time we're talking less than 250 cases total production, it was really easy to just for me personally to miss that and say, oh my gosh, my wine is simply not priced correctly. And because of that, I'm losing money on every bottle I sell to a distributor. I'm losing money. And it, at that point, it was already tough because one, I'm working with Merlot, which wasn't the most popular thing in the world. And two, it was already at a price point at $21 a bottle. That's not going to end up buy the glass in a restaurant. For those that don't know, if you see a bottle of wine by the glass 
on a restaurant list, typically the price of that glass is what they paid for the entire bottle. Just let that soak in. That's not always 100% the case, but very often it is because that's where restaurants make their money. It's in their bar and their cocktail program. That's how they really stay afloat is when they're selling alcohol. So, you know, at 21, I mean, think about it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, would you pay $21 for a glass of Merlot? I wouldn't. And I was making the damn stuff. So all of a sudden I'm like, shoot, I've got to rethink all of this. So here are the options, right? And going back to the volume conversation, do I increase production enough where I can make more of this Merlot and sell it for a lower price, but still make the same amount of money and figure it out somewhere in the middle? And in doing that math, I was like, man, I'm going to have to get to like the 2000, 3000 case mark minimum. And even then it's going to be scraping by. And I mean, scraping by. And I, I was like, there's no way. There's just no way to make this work. And I also didn't have the facilities. I didn't have the space. I didn't have the cash to ramp up, nor did I have the demand to ramp up that quickly. Selling Merlot and then adding on Riesling in 2013 was already pulling teeth. I did not set myself up for success when it came to you know distributing wine. Between the price point and the varieties I was working with, it was a long slog, no doubt about it. It was rough. But it was a very good learning experience. And knowing that I didn't wanna go the volume route and increase the amount of wine I was making. I was like, okay, can I increase my prices and sell more direct to make this make sense? So that's what we started doing and started playing with. And by 2016 into 2017, we revamped all of our pricing. I had a much better understanding of the cost of what was going into my business and what I needed to charge to get money out of it. And it took, the better part of seven years, but we got there. And that's what allowed me to start springboarding into, okay, this is actually now paying its own bills. I'm not having to just keep dumping money into this thing. And two, by 2018, it had grown enough on the direct side of things where it was like, okay, I can actually potentially make a living at this. It's going to be a few more years before we're comfortable and still now it's 2023, five years after starting to work for myself. It's still not super comfortable, but I'm at least not as stressed as I was in, you know, 14, 15, 16. So, you know, it's, it's nice to be in a little bit more of an even keel, but it's still a struggle every single day to know where your wine is going and how you're going to sell it. Uh, there are weeks that go by sometimes where it feels like you're never going to sell another bottle of wine and you just have to work with it. So that was the route we went is we decided to say hey this distribution thing is tough and we're not making enough volume to make it make sense and in fact this is something that we deal with with uh britney's label blair payton right now uh, because of the pricing associated with those wines if we sell a case of that wine it's i mean we're getting half as much or maybe two thirds as much as we would get if we were to sell it direct to a consumer through a, through a wine club or at a tasting event or whatever the case may be. 
So with that, you're like, okay, I either need to double production to make this sense. I, I basically have to double production to start to make this make sense. But even then, you know, when you're selling, you know, her rosé is, you know, retail is $26 a bottle and the red, her Grenache is $30 a bottle. You know, if you're making half or two thirds of that, you know, you're going to have to ramp up production quite a bit to really make that make sense. And this is, I think for many wineries, the game you play. It is, can we produce the volume to keep our prices low? And of course, you know, quality comes into question here because if you start ramping up production, like how, how much can you really focus on quality? And is it worth keeping your prices low, even though you're sacrificing certain things from a quality standpoint and vice versa? If you're making a smaller amount of wine, can you maintain a higher price point and a higher quality and convince people that these wines are still worth it? And that was a huge problem for us. It was a huge struggle because Merlot was what we started with. Uh, and there were other varieties and we didn't start making Cabernet really consistently until 2017. So we kind of painted ourselves into a corner saying, hey, we want to do something different. We want to do something unique and carve out a niche for ourselves. But can we really, you know, command, you know, these price points that make our business work? And that was a struggle. That was a struggle for that first seven or eight years. And it finally started to turn a corner. I know that my wine making skills, you know, increased and I got better at what I do. I know that my business acumen and running this show called MTGA, you know, how that evolved and, and knowing more about what was going on in my business and how to understand a, a balance sheet better and profit and loss and all these other things that I needed to keep track of. Um, you know, I started really, I think, getting a better understanding of what running a business is really like. And again, for those of you that are, you know, in the VC world or have your MBA, you're probably listening to this and being like this, how did this guy do it? And the answer is, I have no idea. But, you know, this is the personal experience that I'm diving into first and foremost. So we finally got to a place where in the last five years, four, four and a half years, where we've leveled things out. You know, we're able to make the wines we want to make at the quality, most importantly, at the quality that I want to make them and continue sustaining this business, growing production here and there in small amounts. Um, also being able to pay for how much more expensive things have gotten. I mean, all I mean, ask any winery expenses in 2022 went up 20 to 30 percent, depending on what you're looking at and the cost of grapes even more so, especially around the Napa area. So that's, you have to be able to kind of, of course, adjust and adapt your business to those changing variables and make it make sense. Now, let's, let's talk about a little bit about the volume side of things, because I think that'll be important to dive into as well. And hopefully I can translate this properly uh, from some of my past experiences working for some other properties around the valley.
Oof. So the volume game is, and I've worked for a couple of, you know, brands over the years. In um, fact, my first really big job in the wine industry was for a company that was making probably around 200 to 300,000 cases of wine. Uh, they were then acquired by a company that was much larger, uh, making huge volume uh, as, as far as, you know, what I kind of, you know, as, at least what I would describe as huge volume uh, of wine. And this was something that I remember this meeting so vividly uh, because we were discussing a particular label redesign and a new wine that we we're going to introduce for one of the brands that this larger company owned. And the president of the company was pulling, you know, I was working on the marketing team at the time. Uh, he pulls you know, us in kind of like one by one into his office and is asking, you know, what we think, what do we like about it, what we don't like, and probably more importantly, how much do you think we're going to charge for this wine? And, and kind of knowing, you know, what this company typically charges, the, the style of wine that they were making kind of in volume, I was like, okay, I mean, realistically, this, it looks really good. It feels as though you could probably push the, you know, $39.99, you know, $49.99, maybe $50 kind of range with it if you really wanted to. And I remember him like looking at me like, huh, interesting. And it turned out that they were making, uh, I think, a twenty-four, like a twenty-four ninety-nine bottle of wine. So, which which is a huge difference when you're looking at a retail shelf. So, it, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, they're looking to. And it was like this quick understanding, and that's when it like locked in. I was like, oh, this is not like you're trying to make something a little bit more boutique and craft as as high end as it might look, but you want it to look high end and for someone to be getting a really good deal on it, so you can kick out just volume on this thing. And I, I was like, that's, that's brilliant. I get it. Okay, awesome. Let's do this. And that wine did really well for itself. Um, there are a couple of others that were very much in that same vein that were like, okay, these are going to be kind of these cheap and cheerful wines. They're not going to be super complex. They're not going to, you know, they're nothing to really write home about, but they're good. And we're just going to make a bunch of them, a bunch of it. And yeah, we're not making a lot per bottle. In fact, I actually, even in my time there, I didn't know the exact cost that went into a, a lot of these. I wasn't privy that information, but I knew full well based on what these were retailing for and what they were going out to di distributors and wholesalers for. I was like, okay, like we're making, you know, maybe, maybe a dollars, maybe cents per bottle, but we're making a lot of it. So it makes sense. No pun intended. Uh, and that was just the game. And that was my first real like eye-opening experience of, because growing up, you know, in a small family wine business, I was used to the, hey, we're really going to focus on quality. You know, maybe we get some out into the, the broad market in terms of restaurants and retail shops to like get our name out there, but we're going to focus on quality. It's going to cost more. It's going to be more expensive. We're going to have to charge more per bottle to make it make sense. But if we're going to make the wines we selfishly want to make, that's worth it to us. And that was the mentality I've had forever. And this was really the first departure from that where I was like, oh, okay. Like you can just kick out great wine. Um, and there's you know, friends that I grew up with who are kind of doing, taking the same model. Like, you know what? We're just trying to make 
good wine. We're not trying to, you know, necessarily get the 100 point rating. We're not trying to, you know, make this something that changes your life, but we just want it to be good. And if we can charge less for that, but make more of it so it's more widespread, awesome. But I, I do still believe very much that when you start playing that volume game, at a certain point, quality does take a hit. And there were some folks that were out from, gosh, I think it was Pennsylvania a couple weeks ago, and they were talking about, man, just the lack of quality, like really high quality wine in our state stores is astounding. I was like, no, it's not. The reason why it's not is because all the high-end stuff is too expensive for distributors to take on in volume. It doesn't make financial sense. So they're not going to sit on, you know, pallets and pallets of Cabernet that they spent, you know, a Boku amount of bucks on when they can buy a lot of these red blends and kind of cheap and cheerful wines that they know they can just, you know, fly, that's just going to fly out the door. It makes sense, you know, and that's that's the competition that exists within, I think, the distribution world. And, and to be completely honest, I know far less about wine distribution and the ins and outs of it than many people. That is probably my A number one Achilles heel uh, in the wine business is, is really understanding that channel uh, as a method of sales. And I knew that it wasn't working for us because of our price point and the varieties and the style that I was making. So we changed our business model and we adapted to overcome that. And there are many that are like, you know what? We know what sells in this broad marketplace. We know what's popular right now. We know stylistically what we need to make to make it make sense. And we can hit the price point that a larger volume of this wine is going to move out the door. Price point is crazy important crazy important you look you look at the uh, rosé market the specificity in pricing when it comes to rosé to make a rosé program work on a broad scale is very very dialed in you can't just make a rosé and say okay we're going to sell it for 14 bucks a bottle fob um, x amount wholesale and call it good like that's not necessarily how that works. Like there, there are certain segments within the wine industry where it's like, if you're going to nail it, you need to hit a very specific price point. If you can't do it, it's just not going to move that well. It's that simple. So when you're playing that volume game, pricing becomes very, very important. And as a result, you can't necessarily use, you know, brand new oak barrels. You can't necessarily rely on just the grapes themselves to give you the, uh, the color and the structure, like you're, you're rattling out volume and you have, that's, this is when, you know, a small producer start talking shit about the, the larger producer. Cause it's like, it's clear you can't make a hundred thousand bottles of that and make it, you know, consistent year after year after year without touching it up with using some of the additives and extracts we've talked about on this show. It's just not possible is what it is, but it also allows them to keep their cost of doing business and the cost of making that wine lower so they can hit a lower price point and more specific price point and sell through a larger volume of it uh, across the country or even the world. So I do want to reiterate now that we're at this point that I'm a novice when it comes to business. I'm probably explaining some of this incorrectly, um, but this is very much what I've experienced and, and what I've seen in the wine industry. Now, Let's take a look at like a hybrid model of this. 
which is another company that I worked for um, that was very focused on the wholesale side of things until they wanted to reel that in a little bit. And then they wanted to have a larger wine club and a larger direct to consumer uh, presence. And this is, this is a place where I, I butted heads uh, quite a bit uh, with what they were doing and how they were going about things. I'm actually surprised that I lasted as long as I did there, uh, given that I tend to speak my mind and not know when to just shut up. <laughs> I'm really surprised I didn't get axed after a couple of years. Um, but this was... A, another problem that really exists within the wine industry across many, many companies, and this is something that many uh, people talk about, you know, when we're grabbing a cold one at the end of the day and we're catching up and it's the expectations of growth and sales within these business models, you know, and what is really sustainable from a business side of things. Now, if you're working for, you know, a billionaire who bought a big old estate here in Napa, and there are, there are a couple of them that I've talked to over the years that are very passionate about wine, very into it. They do really give a shit about what they're making and the quality and everything. They're, they're true, like, serial entrepreneur types. They really want this business to work for them. But they also know full well recouping the investment on the land and the winery that they built is probably just not going to happen in their lifetime. <laughs> I, I, seriously, they're just like, that's just, it is what it is. I, I guess they would consider it something like a sunk cost. You know, it remains on the balance sheet probably, but they're just like, yeah, that's just, it is what it is. Uh, and they focus on, all right, starting from now, as we're making and releasing these wines, this is the stuff that we want to cover. And we're just going to make sure that that works, you know. Uh, it was a very interesting um, mindset uh, in getting to know some of those guys. Uh, but uh, this other company that I was working for, they were like, okay, well, we want to do maybe not so much even this hybrid model. We want to move away from distribution. We want to focus more on direct. And they did the same thing I did. They they reevaluated their price points. They reevaluated the quality in of the wines they were making. Uh, they made a lot of changes to really up quality. Uh, they did raise their prices on certain wines. They introduced new wines at higher price points, and it got to a point where we had a plan, a certain like level of growth that we had to meet. You know, every year you have certain sales goals and things like that. Although surprisingly enough, a lot of wineries don't. There's no goals, no structure, and you're just kind of floating in space and you're just trying to keep ownership happy. It's again, going back to like the lack of business planning, it's crazy how many people don't do that in this industry. It's wild. And these folks were actually very, very dialed in. They, they had it, like the spreadsheets were gorgeous. Again, I love a good spreadsheet. However, there was a certain point in time that we were looking at our sales goals, which were outrageous they, they were not achievable um th there were there was maybe a couple of months where out of you know a few years that we actually like hit our sales goal and on top of that the rate at which we were increasing those sales goals it was getting to a point where it was like do we actually have enough wine to hit that number and it was close in fact it might not have even been possible given what we were using for samples, how things were being discounted and sold. And it was just like, I, I, I don't see this working. 
and there was there were certain points where we had to rebuild certain programs and kind of gut them and 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 you know try and get them back on track and to where we wanted to go but year after year i mean you want to talk about spinning your wheels that's what it felt like and that is why i'm surprised i didn't get axed i probably should have to be completely honest uh, i probably should have but i didn't and i spoke my mind way too much and they put up with it which i'm very appreciative of but it was this at a certain point from a business standpoint if you have x sales goals which are crazy or non-existent how do you motivate a team like that if you have staff that work under you and your goals are so outrageous that you never hit them and they never hit their bonuses what's the incentive for them to stick around or even try right if you have no goals no structure nothing to motivate why would why would they even try and this is another huge sticking point of just this wine business and kind of how as organized and romantic as it may look there's a ton of disorganization and just nonsense going on with so many businesses and it's something that i cannot wrap my finger uh, wrap my head around and going back to the original question at the start of this of like how do you make money in this industry and make a business work you can't do it without at least some structure and if you do too much structure and you're too overbearing then it doesn't work either you have to find somewhat of a middle ground now i'm not saying treat all your employees like special little snowflakes and cater to them but be realistic and understand that if you're you know if you're like us and you cut off the wholesale channel and you're not selling a lot of wine for a couple of years that's going to really hurt your bottom line and if you take that price increase to start selling, you know, direct and make higher quality wine like we did, then that's also going to take some time to get to where you need to go to make that business probably make sense. It's very, very rare that someone just is like, hey, here's this new thing and it explodes. Typically, your name's Finney or Wagner if that happens. Uh, you know, there, there's a handful of people uh, that really make that flash in the pan happen. You know, they're the tip of the spear in any industry. You know, every industry has that person or that business that's just seems like they're light years ahead of every trend and they just got it nailed down. And when you're staying small and trying to do the more boutique thing, you have to make sure that you have that niche, but you've planned appropriately to make that business make sense. So to you know bring in another cliche the failure to plan is a plan to fail and the wine industry is no different you have to decide what model is important for you whether you want to be smaller and more boutique or you want to play the volume game you have to live up to those expectations with distributors and wholesalers or to your direct clients and your wine club or allocation list and on top of that whether you're self-employed or you have a team, you need to be able to have goals and organization that is motivating. Even I, even me with self-employed over here, I have goals. 
I look at my profit and loss statement almost on a weekly basis. It's probably too much. Um, I look at my sales on a weekly and monthly basis. I'm always comparing last year to the year before. I typically have a five-year setup of like, here's where we were, here's where we're at, what wines are moving, what wines aren't, where can I focus my energy to make MTGA better than it was yesterday? I, that's so, so important. And this is something I forgot to look up before we got going because... It is an acronym that I think is used regularly with larger businesses. Uh, and it's gonna be all about goals. Ah, here it is. SMART, this is my favorite thing that I took from the larger kind of, you know, larger scale of business, you know, in my short time in doing it in the wine industry was to write SMART goals. And it's an acronym, S-M-A-R-T. Uh, your goals need to be specific. You need to know what it is exactly you're trying to do. They need to be measurable. There has to be a metric involved with it somehow, whether it's the volume of wine you're selling, the dollars that are bringing in, maybe the margin percentage, uh, lowering costs, maybe. Uh, they need to be achievable. So they got to be rational at the very least. You know, you have to be able to achieve those goals to make them make some sort of sense because if they're not achievable, then what then what's the point if they're if you're trying to shoot the moon here is that really going to be achievable year after year after year many would probably argue that point but here we are they need to be relevant what does your business need right now do you need to lower costs do you need to increase sales do you need to make more wine do you, what, what what do you need to make that business continue to move forward relevance and they need to be time bound. There needs to be some sort of, or they need to be timely. They need to have some sort of deadline. Do you need to improve sales year after year, quarter after quarter, month after month? It's very, you know, very much how a calendar year works within the Napa wine industry. Let's illustrate that real quick. Uh, this podcast might go a little long, so feel free to hit the pause button at any time. We're going to get into it still for a little bit longer. This is how a year looks in Napa. January, it's pretty dead. It's a pretty slow part of the season. February is really no different. We may have a wine club shipment in the winter. Why do we have wine club shipments in the winter? Because the winter is typically a very slow period of time. It's also very typically a safer time to ship wine around the country. And it's a great way to pay for your winter bottling on your, or your spring bottling run. You have costs coming in, you could use an influx of cash, boom, insert wine club shipment. Makes sense. March and April tend to be like, one's good, one's not. Every other year they seem to alternate and May and June are really no different. You have this four month stretch as you get into a year where it's like, you're gonna have one really great one, maybe two really great ones. And if you get three great ones out of that four, you're setting yourself up for success. But they alternate quite a bit. It all depends on spring breaks, Easter vacations, graduation season, around Father's Day, summer vacations as they get going, uh, when you know school lets out. There's a lot of variables in that four-month stretch that will make our businesses and sales and visitation to Napa and sales online and all kinds of other things kind of like ebb and flow. So you know there's some variability there. July and August, kind of equally a crapshoot. However, July typically is slower on average, at least for us. I know there are plenty of people that say, you know, July does pretty well for themselves, but very typically, more often than not, I've seen July be just more mellow. Once we get into August, the busy season starts. 
you start to see people coming out. Harvest is around the corner. People are starting to you know make more vacation plans. You see kind of an uptick in traffic and in sales in August. September and October are the busiest times of the year, bar none. It is they are when we're crushing it because you're trying to set yourself up for OND. That's October, November, December. For those that don't know, you're trying to set yourself up for that last quarter of the year in the best way possible. Because realistically, if you get halfway through November and you have and you're not close to meeting your goals, you are in a lot of trouble. Or if you're like financially not super stable. By the time you get to those la that last month and a half, there is going to be very little you can do to make up for it. Um, a lot of budgets uh, for wine buyers and distributors, as I understand it, are pretty much spent by that time. Uh, from the uh, direct sales side of things, you're usually through all of your wine club shipments at this point. You're just trying to pick up any sales for like holiday gifts and things, which are, you know, they can do really well for some folks. I know there's a lot of people that crush it uh, during that time of year. Uh, so kudos to you to close out December strong. Uh, but if you get into that point and you're struggling to make ends meet, man, you're, there's just no way. There's just no way. Oh, I forgot to mention, you know, the wine club, this is, you know, fun fact. Why, why wineries have wine club shipments in October? Because we're paying for grapes. We're paying for barrels. We have such an influx of bills coming in and that, that couple months stretch between September, October that we need money and we need it now because we got bills to pay. So everybody has a fall wine club shipment, which is why, you know, you have the pleasure of stocking up on wine before the holidays, uh, because we need to make sure there's money in the bank so we can pay for our grapes. That's why fall wine club shipments happen. That, that's, that is pretty much the only reason. It's also safer to ship the wine because weather's cooling off. It's not the hot, hot heat in the summer. It's not the super cool weather and, and freezing weather in the winter. It's a nice kind of middle ground to make sure we can get you your wine uh, in a timely manner. So uh, that, is, that is for sure a thing. Hmm. Sorry, I'm still finishing up some coffee here. I'm trying to keep, keep myself well caffeinated. So... You know, we know that based on like that calendar year and how we organize our wine businesses, kind of when those influxes of income happen with like wine club shipments or distribution hits and pickups, we also know, hopefully, you know, when the big bills are coming. So that way you can either have that wine club run ahead of time or shortly thereafter or something along those lines to help pay those bills down. Uh, it's, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, something that takes a little bit of time to get into kind of a normal routine and schedule of knowing when those things are typically going to happen. It might adjust a little bit year in and year out, uh, but you figure it out and you find out kind of what that you know pace of business is for your own company uh, or the company you work for. And you go from there to make sure that you can execute appropriately. Uh, so that's, I mean, it's... It's a it's a wild industry, and realistically, I feel like the more I talk about it, it's not any different than any other industry. But the biggest thing is that there's kind of this you know romantic, you know esoteric, you know beautiful thing that the wine industry is, and for some reason, there is a severe lack of planning, a lack of definition, not using those smart goals and objectives. Uh, to reiterate that acronym. And there's just not an efficient or fleshed out business plan. It's a lot of shooting from the hip and hoping for the best. And unfortunately, 
there are a lot of wineries that are even fairly established that, you know, may or may not be doing well as a result. Um, you like to think you see a brand name out there and, oh, they must be killing it. Those wines are everywhere. You check under the hood and you're like, oh, no, there's there's this is this is how how is this happening? You guys are doing what now? It happens all the time out here. And it's why so many small, specifically the smaller guys, uh, fall by the wayside or go out of business. It's why some of the bigger guys get eaten up by larger conglomerates. Um, it's the way of the world of, you know, mergers and acquisitions sometimes. Um, it's just the wine business side of it is fascinating to me. I love that. I, I feel as though I, I definitely have not mastered it. I'm again, I'm sure there's someone just like pulling out their hair right now, the way I've explained some of this stuff, but you know, the way that we've evolved as a business over the last almost 15 years now has been very, very eye opening, and still the most surprising thing to this day is the sheer lack of planning behind so many of these wine businesses. And this does not just apply to Napa. This this applies to California, the West Coast, the industry as a whole. It's very, very interesting to see how out of touch. Uh, some managements can be with what's actually happening on the front line and, and where their sales are going or how they're happening. And also how that, like what the goals and objectives of that business are, if there are any to begin with. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And it's something that I think the brands that survive and those that continue get better at, and hopefully they do. Um, hopefully it, continues not to be a struggle for them and they can figure it out and hopefully they can make that business model whether again whether it's the volume side of things or the more boutique side of things hopefully they can find a way to make that make sense and figure out what works for them and hopefully they can continue to supply some great wine for the rest of us so this i i'm it's the, the wine business side of things is it's always fascinates me and it's pretty interesting to see how it has evolved in my lifetime out here from a lot of kind of, you know, basic just farmers and, you know, good old boys and gals trying to make a go at the wine industry to the millionaires and billionaires who have moved in and have started their own passion projects and how those factor into the wine industry as a whole. Uh, it's it's very, very interesting. Uh, it's a industry that's constantly evolving uh, it is also one that is constantly behind the times, uh, technologically, uh, because we spend all of our money on barrels and grapes. Typically <laughs> there's a reason for that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting business where it's, it's, it's just, again, it, it blows my mind. I, I always kind of stumble around it because I just can't believe that so many places continue to survive with little to no plan or just way too much bureaucracy and somehow they find a way to make it happen and continue doing what they do best. So, uh, please, I, th that was definitely more of the, I think broad scope overview of, you know, what we did at MTGA to really get our business up and going, uh, the different options uh, that are available, maybe some of the pitfalls in terms of, you know, pricing structures and the quality 
of things uh, versus, you know, you know, in the volume sense to trying to build a direct business uh, and more of a grassroots kind of model. Um, there's there's just all kinds of ways to go about it. All of them have their pitfalls and their challenges, and both can be very, very successful if you plan and if you know how you're going to move your wine. Because the sales side of things is not easy. It's one thing to make wine. It is another thing to sell it. With that, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, this is a rabbit hole we could probably spend an entire month of episodes on. Uh, so do please, uh, any feedback, of course, questions, feel free to fire them our way. Leave them in the comments for our monthly q and I'm very excited to continue kind of diving into some of these uh, you know, more detailed questions at the end of the month and translate some of those to longer form episodes uh, throughout months to come. So uh, it's a great way to help provide content and make sure that I'm giving you all information and kind of detail within the wine industry that you are most interested in. So I can't thank you enough for tuning in. Uh, be sure to hit subscribe uh, for any other wine lovers that you know. Uh, feel free to share our podcast with them as well because you can always find it on our the MTGA Wines YouTube channel. Uh, it's also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and I think on Amazon still as well. Uh, be sure to check those out. Love you all. Mean it. We'll catch you next time.